This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Hello, my name is Stephanie Creary, and I'm an assistant professor of management at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. And I am so delighted to welcome you to today's episode of the Knowledge at Wharton Leading Diversity at Work podcast series which today is focused on the topic of creating equity in COVID-19 testing and vaccine distribution. Joining me today are three very special guests. First, joining me as a co-host for today's conversation is my Wharton management colleague, Dr. Aline Gatignon, assistant professor of management whose research explains how firms can collaborate with non-governmental organizations and governments to solve environmental, social, and governance issues of mutual concern. Second, we have Mr. David Casey, who is Senior Vice President of Workforce Strategies and Chief Diversity Officer at CBS Health. He has 20 years of experience in the field of diversity practice, having served as a chief diversity officer for two Fortune 50 companies. He's also participated in White House initiatives, consulted with members of Congress, advised international political appointees and delegations, spoken to private sector corporations, professional associations, academia, and not-for-profits of all shapes and sizes. Currently, David spends more than 50% of his time focused on issues of equity in COVID-19 testing and vaccine distribution. And our third guest we have today is Dr. Florencia Polite, who is Associate Professor of Clinical Obstetrics and Gynecology and Chief of the Division of General OBGYN at the Perelman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Polite is a native of Philadelphia and a graduate of Harvard College and the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine. She completed her residency training in obstetrics and gynecology at NYU and Bellevue Hospitals, where she served as the administrative chief resident and received the Lyman Barton Memorial Chief Resident Award. Dr. Polite has been featured in several news media outlets lately for the work she and her colleagues are doing to increase vaccine acceptance and distribution in the Black community. I'm so grateful to each of you, Aline, David, and Dr. Polite, for being with us here today. Thank you for participating in this conversation about creating equity in COVID-19 testing and vaccine distribution. So I want to actually start with Dr. Polite, because I think it's important to give everyone the same background understanding of issues of health equity and access to health care. And certainly, Dr. Polite, we've heard a lot about healthcare access and equity issues in relation to COVID over the last year. But can you help us to understand which issues of healthcare access and equity are ongoing, meaning obviously that these are things that are a function of our healthcare system, and we've been wrestling with them for some time. And what are the new issues that have emerged in light of COVID-19? Sure. So first off, Stephanie, thank you so much uh, for having me. So I am, I am, as you mentioned, an OBGYN by trade. So certainly in our country, we have been dealing with issues of maternal morbidity and mortality, or the increased rate of deaths among Black mothers. This is something that we um, in OBGYN are struggling with, right? It has to do with the prenatal care. It has to do with access to um, doctors during the antepartum or pre-pregnancy period. It has to do with the treatment of patients during and after their deliveries. Um, we've seen 
countless studies now that have talked about the reception of, of Black patients and their pain management in hospitals, that doctors are less likely to address the pain of, of Black patients. We've seen over many years um, this idea that Black people are dying at higher rates than whites when we look at almost every cancer. And that has to do with access to physicians, it has to do with screening, it has to do with detection, it has to do with, do we offer the same options when something is found? So we know that we have already had a long way to go. And some of this also has to do with mistrust of the medical community by the black community. And, and rest assured, this mistrust is not unearned, right? We have 400 years in our country where we were able to see how one could imagine that there are two different ways that you could be treated in this country, whether you are black or white. And if you disagree, I would say you should check the TV on January 6th and understand that there were, in many of our eyes, two distinctly different Americas, right? We, we all know what that would look like if there were black people who were hanging from the Capitol. And many of us thought that, that this is, this is not something that our people are able to do without immediate destruction, right? We can look at the young young boy who was killed yesterday at 20 years old. So, so these issues that we look at outside of medicine are not in a bubble. They absolutely affect how Black patients think they are perceived when they come into a hospital and in many ways are treated when they come into a hospital system. COVID then added truly a pandemic on top of a pandemic, right? When we think about George Floyd happening literally in the middle of the COVID pandemic, it is because we are not, again, looking at distinct problems. We're looking at additive type problems. So when I think about COVID, I think about it now as a three-headed beast. The first being the idea that Black and Latinx communities are dying at two to three times the rate of white communities. And our CEO at the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania says that all the time that this is because of racism, not race, right? There's nothing inherently different about a Black or Latinx patient that makes them more likely to die of COVID. But there are a number of systemic factors that affect that mortality or that death rate, including in the beginning, when you think about the, the types of jobs that we are likely to have where PPE may not have been readily apparent, right? If you were you know, a SEPTA driver, if you were a grocery store worker. I mean, I remember going to my grocery store for three months and saying to my husband, I can't believe they don't have a mask mandate in here yet. I can't believe they don't have the plastic glass up. And these folks are interacting with person after person after person without proper PPE, right? So we think about the jobs that we might've had that didn't protect us. We think about the multi-generational homes where you have a young college student or a young working person who goes out and is not necessarily doing the, the um, social distancing and masking in the right ways. And they may get sick, but not really. They got a little COVID, right? But they come home and now grandma got COVID and grandma who's obese and diabetic and hypertensive got COVID, she's intubated and dies. So we think about all of the overlying things that have affected this mortality rate. And that was the first problem that was keeping me up at night. Absolutely. And this, the second part of this three-headed beast is this idea of vaccine hesitancy. And this was something that I thought about very early on, which is if we were dying at higher rates, and having concern about accepting the vaccine, where might that leave my community in five months or five years? And so the hesitancy piece has something that I've put a lot of effort into specifically in the hospital community, because we were able to say in the hospital, if everyone has access, access is not the issue. It's just a hesitancy problem. And so we can literally look at a science experiment where you've, you've cut out everything else and you're looking at just one part of the problem. The third part of that three-headed beast 
is access to the community. And that's the rollout and the distribution that I know we're going to talk about later on in this podcast. But that's been, you know, when we look at the different cities, and we look at, at just from the nationwide um, distribution down to the, the states, to the cities, who's actually getting access to the vaccine? Who are the people who should be, based on risk factors, getting access to the vaccine? And how do we make sure that we get into the community? So those are the three headed, that's the three heads of the beast yeah. that I hope we actually get to talk about. No, absolutely. And and I love how you started us off by helping us to understand that these are longstanding issues. It's just taking on a slightly different face in, 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 in another pandemic, right? So I used to work in healthcare. Um, and more recently, I was preparing for a presentation at a, at a major healthcare system. And I was just brushing up on some of the medical literature on healthcare equity and access. And I came across a line that felt familiar to me as someone who studies issues of diversity and inclusion in management and now in the field of management in a business school. And it was people who have been writing for some time studying and have data evidence that shows the massive um, inequities and structural racism in healthcare, talking about how they've been having this conversation for so long, but the conversation is often marginalized or silenced in ways that don't allow the broader public to really understand the depth of the issues. And, and as a somebody who, who studies these issues in management, I could say we've had the same problem, right? Is that not everybody has appreciated and valued this topic until there's a problem, right? Now, now thankfully, we've done a lot of research so we can now deploy it, but I would love to get you a little bit more of your perspective on that, Dr. Glee. Well, Stephanie, think about the fact that in the last month, JAMA published a podcast that said, doctors are not racist and thus racism doesn't exist in healthcare, right? So when, when, when people say we're all on the same page, I stop them in their tracks quickly and say, rest assured, we are not all on the same page, right? The idea that that podcast not just got taped, but got produced by what many would consider to be the leading journal in medicine. And we're going to say, we don't have systemic racism. I mean, it's, it's, we have a long, long way to go. And I, I you know, I often say we got here over 400 years, we're not going to turn around in two weeks or a month. It's going to take a lot of very intentional small steps over a long time. But we have many, many, many people to bring along who, quite frankly, are often in leadership positions, which might make this a more challenging burden to overcome. Absolutely. So one more question before I, I move over to David is I just want to, uh, can you give us a, an understanding of some of the initiatives that you've been personally involved in now relating to uh, testing hesitancy and access. I'm obviously curious because, you know, you are uh, by training, by expertise in OBGYN. So I think for some people, it's like, well, how does the OBGYN get involved in issues of testing hesitancy and access? And I think your story is such a, a remarkable one. I would love to have you share a little bit about that with us. Sure. So first of all, I tell people that's a great question because I, you know, the good news is in the pandemic, babies were still coming, right? So we found out very quickly what it meant to be an essential, essential healthcare worker because it was sometimes great to go to work and just tune out everything else that was going on and just be in front of that patient, having an awesome delivery. Um, but really what was was literally keeping me up at night were these issues that I that I spoke about in terms of hesitancy. And so I woke up one day in December and just wrote an op-ed about um, what... I wanted our black community to know 
about us as black professionals, specifically physicians saying like, we understand the hesitancy, but let's try to get through this together to get vaccinated. I then made the personal decision to get vaccinated on the first day at Penn, despite my own personal hesitancy. I mean, I'm not an early adopter of anything, um, but I felt like this was an opportunity for me to get vaccinated, to be public about what that experience was like, and to hopefully educate my family, my friends, and my community and my patients. And so that's what's happened. In um, On that first day when I went to go get vaccinated, I talked to our CMO who mentioned that we were having trouble in our hospital getting members of the staff to agree to get vaccinated. And so I worked with Aaron Berman, who's the um, Assistant Executive Director at HUP, on an initiative called CAVEAT, COVID Acceptance Vaccine Education and Adoption Task Force. That was an acronym that I literally just woke up and thought about <laughs> because I was apparently in my sleep. So like literally ruminating about uh, these issues. But we came up with a three-part initiative to help address the staff that have the highest um, rates of, of Black professionals in them, which includes EVS or environmental services, dietary, patient transport, and materials management. The first two um, who have greater than 75% Black staff and the last two greater than 50% Black staff members. And this initiative included a um, one-pager which was six of us who got vaccinated, Black physicians that said, here's why we, a group of Black physicians, agreed to get vaccinated. Essentially, we know you might be hesitant, but here's why we did this. And this one pager was handed out to every member of that staffing groups that I mentioned with information about the vaccine. And this was important because much of the pen information had been going out on our email, but many of those groups are actually outsourced. And so they're not on the pen email. They weren't their, their invitations to get vaccinated weren't sent out the same way. So they were literally handed an envelope that included information about the vaccine, how they could sign up, and literally just addressing hesitancy head on. The second part involves some screensavers that were originally meant to just be in the break rooms where these same staff members clock in and clock out. But we were able to work with the actual PR um, team at the hospital and they developed these screensavers that were really fabulous and they ended up running them throughout the whole hospital. And it, it, they interspersed with information about the sort of myths and, and facts about the vaccine that we had heard, right? That lots of the information that was seeping in that was just blatantly inaccurate, but you could see how it might come up and it addressed those. And then they were interspersed with members of, again, the, the hospital who had agreed to get vaccinated. Um, and there was an over preponderance of black staff members. So if you looked at just the screensavers from start to finish, you would have thought that we had a much higher rate of black physicians at, at HUP than we really did. Mm -hmm. um, and then the third part involved huddles. And so we know that these same um, staff members meet with their supervisors you know, across their shifts. And we made a decision to have two physicians go to a series of huddles over the course of the week to just answer their questions directly. There was no script. It was any question that you have, you get to, to ask of a physician. And we made the decision that at least one of those physicians who came to the um, huddles had to be black. And that was out of a real, just a direct conversation with Aaron about who his staff members wanted to hear from. And I told him that I was hearing conflicting information in the hospital. My black physicians were saying they wanna hear from us. The white physicians were saying they just, anybody who's a trusted voice is fine. And Aaron said, they want to hear from you all. And I was like, well, then they will hear from us. And so we made that decision um, to do a, a series of huddles over the course of the week. Some of them were taped so that they could rerun in the break rooms. And at the end of the week, the um, CPUB, which is the, the clinical practice of University of Pennsylvania um, Anti-Racism Committee 
held our um, town hall on the COVID vaccine experience in the black and brown communities. And so we ended the week with that and made the decision that sort of, we had gotten out enough education that we did not want the term coercion to be used. It really was about making sure that that people had access and information. They knew that they could come to us later if they had another question. And then we sort of left it at that. I actually have heard that since then, one of the initiatives that I was not personally involved in, but I'm so excited about, is that they've actually now taken vaccines directly to those staff members, like not even making them come to the vaccine center, just mm-hmm. vaccines in hand, let's just go down to you know the cafeteria and literally taking away any barriers because we are still not over our, our disparity in the hospital system. And as of March, we had 45% of black staff members who had agreed to get vaccinated compared to 75% of white staff members. And again, when we're talking about the hospital, What's so important is that access is not an issue. This has nothing at all to do with them not being able to get the vaccine. The vaccine has been available to them since January, December for some. This has to do with, will they actually take that step? And so that's a key, you know, as we talk about distribution into the community, the hospital staff represent, like I said, it's just an an idea in a group that you can look at and just look at one specific part of the problem, which is just, will they or won't they? That's it. It's incredible. Um, we're certainly going to get into deeper into issues of community, but you're reminding us that when we look, the workforce is actually the community, right? They live mm-hmm. in these communities. And if you have healthcare staff and providers and people who have access to the vaccine, hesitant and not willing to get it, what does that mean for everyone else? So I'm going to turn it to to David, uh, who again is Senior Vice President of Workforce Strategies and Chief Diversity Officer at CVS Health. And CVS Health has been doing a lot of work to try to uh, you know, engage the community, give, give access, get, help the community members get access um, to testing and to vaccines. And I think it would be great to hear about a lot of the work they're doing. Um, but obviously with the, uh, the notion that CVS Health um, has known for a long time about issues of, of lack of access and inequity in healthcare, right? So this is some, certainly something that is not new, but certainly as um, you know, uh, testing and, and COVID vaccine distribution became uh, a prominent uh, opportunity and a concern, the CVS Health has been here on the front lines trying to help resolve some of these issues. So, so David, uh, definitely want to hear from your perspective the role that CVS Health has been playing in issues of healthcare access and equity, but definitely want to hear about the successes and maybe it's come through some bumps and bruises, I don't know, that CVS Health has had as you've tried to, tried to help uh, with testing and vaccine uh, vaccination efforts. David. Uh, thank you, Stephanie. Uh, and again, thank you for having me on today. Very excited to talk about these, uh, all these issues. I'll tell you, as Dr. Uh, Polit was was talking, I'm on mute and I'm trying so hard to, like, to reserve myself because I just want to start screaming and shouting, amen, everything she said. So, um, so thank you very much. I think that was an excellent way to start off this dialogue. So Stephanie, as you mentioned, we've been focused on um, health equity for quite a while, even uh, pre-COVID. Uh, we were doing things like uh, you, it's really important to understand the holistic nature of healthcare. You know, most people think of healthcare when it's at that point of care, but health there are a lot of determinants and a lot of factors. Uh, many people refer to it as social determinants of health, right? There are a lot of things that really uh, have an input into how someone's um, going to experience healthcare or how healthy they are. 
So there are a couple of things that we were doing pre-COVID that I, I can share with you that we'll that we have been doing during COVID, and some of them have been put on hold that we'll have to resume when it's a little bit more safe to do to do so. But uh, one area that we paid a lot of attention to was affordable housing. You know, I think we've all heard some of the uh, you know the, the the saying that your zip code matters more than your genetic code when it comes to healthcare. And in certain communities, you can literally go less than a mile. And uh, just based on that zip code, the healthcare experience of the individuals in that part of the community can be vastly different than they are just uh, a mile down the road. So uh, last year, we invested about $114 million in about 2,800 affordable housing units. And uh, what we found in those uh, affordable housing units was it wasn't just a matter of us coming in to write a check to a developer and then walking away. There were a lot of supportive needs that individuals in those housing units had whether it was dealing with addiction, whether it was dealing with domestic violence, uh, whether it was dealing with any number of issues that impacted their health beyond just the place that they were living. We wanted to address all of that to the extent that we could. So uh, we have introduced, you know, we brought in our community relations team, <clears throat> our investment team, a number of different assets that we have underneath our umbrella to make sure that we can teach people how to get access to services, bring those services into these units if they have difficulty getting out there into the community to access them, teaching folks how to eat healthily as they can, given whatever budgetary constraints that they may have. So, uh, you know, affordable housing for us has been a major, major focus and will continue to be a focus. And we have that hasn't stopped during COVID. So we've been able to continue making investments in affordable housing. Uh, so I'm very excited about the impact that that has had and will have. Uh, another thing that we had done pre-COVID that's been a little bit on pause uh, during the uh, the outbreak of the virus is uh, something we call Project Health. And Project Health are uh, community-based um, uh, biometric screenings that we've been doing for well over a decade now in predominantly Black and predominantly Hispanic markets across the country. And we invite people in to do these screenings at no cost uh, into a CVS store. And I will tell you, Stephanie, one thing that I found uh, very interesting is every year without fail, we have individuals who uh, come to these free screenings who are in very, very dire straits as it relates to their health care, and they have no idea. Many don't have a primary care physician. They don't have regular access to health care. And I, we've had a number of situations where we've had individuals carted away from the screening in an ambulance because they were on a verge of a stroke or some other catastrophic healthcare event. But again, they felt fine. They didn't know their numbers. They didn't think there was an issue. So uh, the healthcare screenings, as I mentioned, have been a little bit on pause. Uh, we'll resume those when it's safe to do that. And we're gonna be introducing a mobile co uh, component to Project Health as well. So it's not just about getting people into our stores, but how do we, through mobile units, take those biometric screenings into the community where people live and how they live to make that access even more accessible, if you will. And then uh, another one that we put on pause that I was very excited to really dig into and, and get running, and we will again uh, when, when it's safe to do so, is partnering with Black Barbershops. Hmm. And, uh, you know, what we were doing with Black Barbers were, you know, teaching them, you know, some of the signs to look for. Uh, with their patients in relation to their health and actually even doing uh, some biometric screenings in the barbershop, you have a captive audience. You're sitting there in the chair, you're not going anywhere, let me take your blood pressure while you're here. Right. Uh, for individuals who needed follow-up care, based on some of those initial screenings, we were able to refer them to care or make sure they got that, that access to care. I remember going, one in, going to one in Vegas and uh, was next door to a beauty shop. 
And uh, we, after we got done in the barbershop, we went next door to the, the beauty shop and we told the ladies, we're coming for you next. And they told <laughs> us to get out. <laughs> they told us to get out of the beauty shop. Uh, so so when, when, when it's safe to do so, we're going to resume those kinds of things. And, um, you know, again, quickly, Stephanie, to your question about uh, some of the uh, uh, successes and challenges with uh, COVID rollout. You, you know, one of the things we realized early on was even though we had 10,000 stores around the country, and about uh, 30% of those are in what the CDC deems as socially vulnerable communities, right, based on their social vulnerability index. It's not a perfect index, but there's a lot of variables that go in there that uh, give you some, some clue as to how uh, resilient a community may be from a catastrophic event like a, a global pandemic. So, um, you know, in addition to those 10,000 stores, and, you know, we knew that we couldn't do it alone. We have to have partnerships. Uh, back to Dr. Polite's point, one of the things we heard in a community dialogue that we were leading with uh, some not-for-profits and other community leaders was a phrase that I'm going to steal, and I've been using it ever since I heard it because I think it's so important. And he said that the the uh, the ability to really you know effectively deliver these vaccines into Black communities and Brown communities, you have to have a couple things. You have to have trusted faces and trusted places. So we wanted to make sure that even though, you know, we've got this massive footprint of stores, where are the places people typically go that they're used to going that they may still be going during COVID? Is it the, you know, is it a community free and charitable clinic? Is it their church? You know, is it the grocery store? You know, where is it that, that people are going and how can we uh, offer vaccines there? you know, as opposed to our store. We, again, we want to take, uh, you know, healthcare to the community, not just where people live, but how they live. And, you know, I think Dr. Polite hit on a number of the biggest challenges. You know, trust is certainly still a big barrier. We have seen the levels of trust increase, but not to the levels that we need them to, and certainly not in the uh, <clears throat> Black and African-American community. So that's been a, a huge challenge. And then inventory. Let's just talk about, you know, the practical and tactical you know, challenge of inventory. We can't get enough vaccine fast enough. In some communities, we've heard that trust wasn't as much of an issue as access, you know, and, and it really varies community by community. That's been one of, one of our biggest learnings as we've gone across the country and have, and have conducted these community dialogues, as we call them. We've heard in some communities, even in the same conversation, you have one community leader in a city who may say access is our issue and another community leader in the same city will say, no, trust is our biggest issue. So for us, one of the key learnings has really been we have to go outside the four walls of our business and dig deep into the community and actually listen to the community we're trying to serve and make sure we truly understand what their primary needs are. Absolutely. So I know my colleague, um, Aline Gatignon, um, is waiting to dive more deeply into many of the things that she has heard. And I know because her interests are particularly in these partnerships that David has started to introduce and, and Dr. Polite has, has started to hint at, I would love to, to turn it over to Aline to, to help us dig more deeply into these issues. Aline. Thank you so much. This has been just a fascinating overview of the, the complexity of the challenges and the issues that you're facing on a daily basis. And you know, what, I, what I'd really appreciate would be if we could kind of get a, a, an idea of when you get a little bit more deeply into the weeds of the day-to-day. -day. Uh, you know, can I start with, with Dr. Polite? You know, can you tell us what, when you're going out into, and tell us maybe a little bit more about the work you've been doing with communities, what would you say have been kind of the single most challenging aspect as you've tried to extend 
um, you know, issues of access to vaccines, uh, you know, vaccines and testing into the communities over the past few months? So, so first off, I'm going to have to echo uh, David. I wish that this part of this podcast was video because you all couldn't see me like shaking my head in agreement fervently with everything that, that David said. I really think David's last point is what it is, right? Which is not making the assumption that the the lack of a vaccination in a community means one thing or the other. That to me has been the single biggest learning lesson. For some people, it is hesitancy and trust. For some people, it is access. We should not waste our time making the assumption that it's either because the treatment for both of those is very different, right? And, and quite frankly, I don't have the answer for a lot of folks who the access is their issue because we have had major issues with getting enough vaccine into the city of Philadelphia. So I, like I said, I have two talks that I will do after this podcast today, one of them for teenage students and their parents. We will address issues of hesitancy and trust and for some of them will, that will absolutely be it. It will literally be, how do I get you all to be on the page that this is a safe endeavor? And as far as I see it, the only way that we get out of the pandemic. Others will wanna know one thing, tell me where to go to get vaccinated. And believe it or not, I can't answer question two for them because if they're not in groups one, A, B, or C, I can't tell them. If they are in A, B, or C, I have some options for them, but even those options don't guarantee them to get vaccinated tomorrow. So this, this issue is, is really this two-sided, this two sides of this coin. And we have very different strategies for how to approach them, but the truth is none of them are hundred percent. And that's what people want when they talk to us, right? They wanna know what's my answer that's gonna get me to here or, how, or just tell me where to go. And it's very um, unsatisfying not to be able to give them that. Yeah, that makes sense. And and so, you know, it sounds like from what kind of the, the common thread through what both of you has been saying have been saying is that there's kind of less, not necessarily so much to action, but there's just so much of interaction and dialogue and, you know, not telling people so much as asking and hearing and listening. And so can you tell us maybe a little bit more about, um, you know, in your work with the, uh, the Mercy and Penn Community Initiative in particular, how that is manifested through your relationships with community partners? Sure, so I was a vaccinator at the Mercy Penn Medicine, the community, Vaccine Collaborative. I was not a planner of it. Dr. Catley is is like the the ops person there, and she just did a has done a fantastic job. This is a continual community initiative to specifically address the Black and Brown community. And the first thing they did is exactly what David mentioned: partnering with barbershops, partnering with folks in the community, right? Getting to those places where people know and have trusted experiences. Meeting with community leaders, meeting with clergy, right? One of the very first you know, TV stints I ever did about the vaccine talked about how we as the black community are not a monolithic community, right? Like doctors are not the only people who can tell people to get the vaccine. And in many ways, in many places, we're actually not even the ones who can give that message the most fervently. It is a community leader. It is a clergyman. It's important that athletes and rappers do that too, right? I don't personally care if Jay-Z gets the vaccine, but if a 20-year-old guy thinks that, then Jay-Z should get the vaccine and he should be on TV talking about it, right? So it has to do with these who are, who's the messenger who's most going to impact and influence that person or that patient? That's who needs to be giving them the message. So this, this Mercy Initiative, they've gone into the community. They have 
address the internet issue by saying you could text to sign up. You could also call for someone else to get them signed up. And then we are actually in schools and in, in community centers vaccinating. What I loved about it is that it was efficiency at its highest, right? And, and Penn was able to do that because Penn has resources, right? So first off, we signed up on a sign up genius, which was, I had to say quite efficient, but literally you got to say, this is the role that I want to play based on my medical criteria. So it told you, if you want to be a greeter, you don't have to have any medical expertise. If you want to be a consenter, you have to have these credentials. If you want to be a vaccinator, you have to be these credentials. Once I signed up to be a vaccinator, I was sent instructions that I had to do online homework, right? I'm a doctor. I do, do lots of surgeries. I don't actually give vaccines. I don't give injections. So I had to watch a video to show me how to actually give the vaccine. So before I got there, I'd already done some training. Then I get there and we get training. Awesome. Loved it, right? I'm given a paddle that says ready so that there's no yelling about the next person. I'm given a red and a blue sheet. Red means I need more vaccines. Blue means I need more supplies. Seems again, like we're just thinking about all the ways that we can make this day more efficient. Then as I vaccinate, I have to sign off every vaccination page. Well, my name, Florencia Griapolit, is quite long. And I was like, by the end, you're not gonna know who actually vaccinated because you're gonna get in my doctor handwriting. I actually got labels that had my name nicely typed out. So I knew exactly how many people I vaccinated at the end of the day because it was how many labels I had gone through. So in one day I vaccinated 80 people, 70 of whom were black. And it was amazingly efficient. And patients, these patients did not have hesitancy because they just wanted the vaccine. They were just excited that we were coming into the community, that they could walk to the community, they could walk to this particular school on the day that I went versus the you know community center that they went to the next Saturday. And it was, I don't know, I don't know about the consenting process. I don't know about the check-in process because I wasn't involved in those. It was literally like, you know your space and, and you're I'm not preparing the vaccine. I'm literally in my little bubble. And they trained me well to do my bubble. And at the end of the day, it it was like food for my soul. I really I felt like the hesitancy work is exhausting. Being an advocate is exhausting. And this was like just the the like icing on the cake. I mean, it was nothing but thank yous and appreciation and people in the community who said, we've been waiting. We trust Penn. We just wanted to know when we were going to be able to get the vaccine. And it was one of the best days. I mean, I, I came home and my, my kids were like, you were super tired when you went and you look way less tired now. <laughs> and I said, because I just, I felt like I'd done something really awesome for so many people who were so appreciative. And again, it's the, that other side of the coin that I got to spend time on. I think it's incredibly important that we do tap into these different community leaders, quite frankly. Now, that's a really powerful example of how you've got, you know, kind of each of these partners seems to be bringing a different piece of the puzzle. And what that leads to is a combination of interaction, trust, and a lot of efficiency with everybody kind of all those moving parts working to work together really, really well. Um, that's that's really inspirational. Thank you for sharing that. And so I wonder if you could give us kind of two, three recommendations that you might have for healthcare organizations that are interested in developing these types of partnerships. So the first thing, if we were talking about the, the healthcare space, as I alluded to with Operation Caveat, and as Stephanie mentioned, you know, the healthcare workers are the community, right? And so that was why my original goal with Caveat was to address the healthcare workers, because we were the ones who had access to the vaccine before anybody else even did. And the thought was that we would be, you know, the healthcare community are conduits to the outside community, right? So when your, you know, uncle who works in the hospital says, I got vaccinated and I'm safe, and he goes home and he tells the group that people trust him, they see him, they know he's still here, right? So 
if you're in the healthcare space, I would say, think about, first of all, find out your numbers, right? Like figure out, is there a disparity in your house, in your health system? In the majority of cases, I will tell you there is. And I know that from publishing the information with Operation Caveat, that a lot of the contacts I got said, how did you get your disparity numbers? How do you know the number of black staff workers who got vaccinated versus white workers? Did you guys have to, you know, report your race when you got vaccinated? And I literally laugh each time because I, I remind them like every healthcare system knows who works there. Every healthcare system knows the demographics of who's there. I guarantee you David could tell me about CVS because they know that. But healthcare systems tend not to want to share information if it's a disparity because they think it looks poorly upon them as opposed to just agreeing that we have a disparity and saying, what are we gonna do about it, <laughs> right? You don't, and no one's asking people to you know, recreate the wheel. We actually, um, in the LA Times piece that was published about caveat, has a link to every single initiative we did at Penn. So you don't have to redo it. You can just take your doctors and put them on a one pager. You can take your faces and put them on screensavers and use the same CDC information. So no one is asking anyone to recreate something, but think about and, and invest some time and some resources into the healthcare community and into getting equalization of vaccine rates. And quite frankly, people haven't invested into that. Similarly, in the community, I think we have to agree that we want everyone to have access to vaccines. We wanna make sure that we agree to equity and then figure out how do we go into the communities, into those, as David said, those sacred faces, you know, those familiar faces and familiar spaces. Like, that's what we need. The trusted faces, trusted spaces. I love that. I'm going to mess it up because I mess up algorithms and acronyms, David, but I'm going to eventually get it right. Great. So, you know, data, a really strong understanding of the problem, and then getting kind of people around the table to then, uh, to then tackle it. Exactly. Great. Thank you so much. And, you know, I think you do great at acronyms. Caveat, just that's going to stick in my mind. Um, thank you so much, Dr. Polite. Can I kind of turn, turn it over to, to David now and ask you, you know, what would you say was the single most challenging aspect that CVS Health has found in ensuring that question of equity in the COVID response over the past year? So thank you, Elaine. And, and, and there's uh, trusted places and trusted faces, Dr. Polite. So. <laughs> You know, I, I think it, it was an early challenge, but one that we were able to overcome fairly quickly. But I think going back all the way back to the start of the, uh, uh, at least when most of us knew when, uh, when COVID was beginning to ramp up around the spring of uh, 2020, I remember seeing some early data, fairly early data that was posted in the New York Times, I believe, that was showing the disparate uh, or incremental impact of uh, COVID infections and, and deaths in the uh, Black community in particular. At that time, they really hadn't dug too much into the Hispanic and Latino community, but they, they did, we were seeing data on the, black, on the impact of the Black community. So I remember posting uh, some information around that data on LinkedIn, and a gentleman responded in very short order, actually a couple of folks responded in short order and said, here we are in the middle of a global pandemic, now is not the time to talk about race. And I'm sitting here thinking, okay, we have data in front of us. Um, so why is now not the time to talk about race? We knew fairly early on that COVID had a disparate impact on the older population. No one really challenged that. No one really said, why are we talking about old people? But as soon as we saw data that shows specifically and explicitly that there was a disparate impact on the Black and African-American community, then the uh, part of the narrative became, well, why are we talking about race? So you have to ask yourself, you know, 
where did that hesitation come from? Where did that pushback come from? So making sure that equity is being thought about at the outset, not as an afterthought, I think is a challenge. It was a challenge for us in the beginning, and it's a challenge for all of us involved in healthcare to think about going forward. A quick example of that is uh, when COVID testing rolled out. And the, the, the delivery mechanism or the protocol for testing at that point was drive-through. We had these massive tents. Everybody had tents up everywhere. These massive testing sites, you know, we were getting, you know, lots of people through, um, you know, on, on a daily basis. <clears throat> but, you know, I'm sitting there thinking, I see the data about the impact, the disparate impact on black and brown communities in particular. And, uh, you know, frontline workers, essential workers who may be in lower socioeconomic strata. And, um, I'm, you know, but the only way to get tested is to have a vehicle and go through a drive through site. What about those individuals who don't have access to personal vehicles? And, uh, and that they are, a prescription was required at the outset for testing. What about those individuals that don't have access to a primary care physician or someone who can write them a prescription? How did they get tested? And how many of them are in these communities that are being disparately impacted? So we raised the issue. And uh, we were able to extend our testing uh, delivery into what we call community-based testing sites. And going back to the idea of trusted places, trusted faces, we wanted to think about, again, where are the places where people may be used to going, where are places that people are used to seeing, that's where we wanna set up these COVID testing sites. And we wanna do it in partnership with community-based organizations and not-for-profits and faith-based organizations that people know and trust. So we set up about 12 of these community-based testing sites. Uh, we were on the campus of an HBCU. Uh, we were on, at several churches, uh, several mobile units, several uh, free and charitable clinics. Uh, so we really wanted to try to get to the people and the places that, that needed it the most. And as we were, I think someone mentioned it earlier, Dr. Polita, it may have been you, about making sure that these services are actually going to the people who really need them. We tried everything we could, could to mitigate the risk of having individuals from outside of those communities coming into the community and, and taking those resources away. And that's why we were very selective in who we partnered with. We wanted to partner with organizations that had a ready-made list of constituents that they could reach out to, to say, we know you need these services, so we're gonna provide them directly to you. So I think, you know, uh, again, you know, going back to your original question, one of the biggest challenges in this work is making sure that we think about two things. One is what is the difference between equality and equity? It's not just about getting resources into a community. Are you getting them into a community in the way that people in those communities will access them and need to access them? So that's about equity. We have to understand the difference between equality and equity. That's the first thing. And then the second thing is we have to go into it thinking about equity as a variable as we architect these, these uh, solutions, not as an afterthought that we have to react to. So yeah, that's that's really great. So again, you know, in, inspiring examples of the the how the work and the collaborations with these community-based organizations has resulted in you know different outcomes and different ways of going about uh, providing these services. Can you zoom in and tell us a little bit more? Kind of describe the relationship with these organizations now, and you know, in general, kind of you know, what does it entail? What does it take? What are some of the challenges that you might face um, in developing those relationships? Yeah, you know, one of the things that we heard from uh, community-based partners early on, and I'll give you an example of a few of them. Uh, we work with several Urban League affiliates, several NAACP branches. Again, I mentioned a number of faith-based organizations. We actually have now stood up 
a uh, faith-based advisory council that, that represents denominations and uh, congregations from around the country to help advise us on these issues. One of the things they told us at the outset was we need information. And you may say, okay, well, there's a WHO website, there's a CDC website. What they were telling us was that's actually too much for us to call through. We need the culturally relevant information for our colleague, for our constituents, right? So for example, I had an Urban League affiliate CEO say to me, yes, I can go out to the CDC's website, but just telling people to quarantine when they may live in a multi-generational household and telling people to, you know, stick in one, you use this one bedroom and use that one bathroom in a household that may not have a whole lot of bedrooms and may only have one bathroom. He said, I need information translated in a way that my constituents will understand in the way that my constituents can consume that. So we put together information kits in English and Spanish at the outset. And uh, we delivered those to over 2,000 community-based partners that we had had relationships with. Now, what we did was we reached, we looked around the organization and said, who in the company has external partnerships? So it was our community relations team. It was our Medicaid team. It was my team from a diversity standpoint and workforce initiative standpoint. Um, you know, it was our, our meta, our, I said Medicaid, it was our Medicare team. Uh, it was our government affairs team. Uh, we have a group called Public and Labor Sector. So we looked across the organization and said, this is all hands on deck. If you work with anybody outside of the company, come join this working team to make sure that you can help us get this information out to your partners. And we sent it out to about 2,000 different uh, partners. And what we've done since then is we've evolved in the vaccines. I mentioned earlier, we're doing these community dialogues where, again, we're reaching out to those same parts of the business. And we also work with an external partner to say, can you tell us who in the community we need to hear from? Who are people listening to? Who are people um, who have the voice of the, who have the ear of the community at this point? Um, you know, Dr. Polib mentioned something earlier that kind of made me chuckle because we did a pilot in Hartford, Connecticut with Michael Bivens from Bell Biv DeVoe and uh, in partnership with the NAACP. And Michael Bivens, covers multi-generations, so he speaks to a whole lot of people, some old heads like myself and some of the younger folks still know who he is as well. So uh, we partnered with Michael Bivens to help us get the word out, and the NAACP to get the word out in the community, and it was extremely effective. Uh, we also worked with an NAACP chapter down in Miami, and they gave us feedback, and they said, hey, look, having all your information in English and Spanish is great, but in this particular part of Miami, we need Haitian Creole. So we're like, okay, let's translate our materials into Haitian Creole. So, uh, you know, uh, Dr. Gadignon, that's that's a couple of ways that we're working with these partners. We really need to leverage uh, them to make sure, what holes are we missing? What gaps are we missing? What are we not thinking about? What do we not understand? So as we go to the zip code in Miami, we may think we only need English and Spanish, but lo and behold, you're telling us we need Haitian Creole. We That, that was a blind spot for us. So that's the power of these partnerships and the insights that folks in the community and of the community can give to us as a corporation. That's that's really great. So this idea of kind of, you know, a huge coordination job both within and outside the organization to achieve both scale but also adaptability to to local conditions. That's that's really that's really impressive. And so I'll just to wrap up on my end kind of reiterate my question to uh, Dr. Polite and ask, you know, what kind of two three recommendations might you have for uh, corporations that are trying to develop these types of partnerships? I think the first thing that's important is align with a organization that shares your values. 
and that, that may sound kind of cliche. It may sound kind of like, you know, a no brainer, but we actually have like a screening uh, matrix that we use, especially for our community-based workforce programs. And that's one of the first things we look at. What are our company's values? Does this organization share our same values? I think the second thing I would recommend is go into these partnerships and, and look at them as long-term partnerships, not transactional. You know, you really, I, I tell people all the time, I don't need a vendor. I need partners. You know, I need people who are going to really dig in and get to understand our organization and, and um, you know, organizations that I will work with to understand how they work. So many times companies expect unreasonable things from not-for-profits. You know, a lot of not-for-profits don't have staffs of 100 people or 200 people. I was working with a not-for-profit that just until five years ago didn't even have a speakerphone in their conference room, didn't even have, they were still using the fax machine. So as a company, you have to understand you can't expect unreasonable things from these not-for-profit partners. You have to work with them to bring them along. And then I would say last but not least, whatever you do, make sure that you work with that not-for-profit partner or community-based or NGO that to, to establish measurable outcomes. In corporate America, things that matter get measured. So, you know, whether it's whether you think of it as truly philanthropic or not, at the end of the day, you need to be able to articulate what impact it had. And that's not just for a matter of funding. That's just for a matter of being able to, to know, did we have, did we make an impact or not? It helps you prioritize. You, want, you don't want to keep doing things that aren't offering value and solutions to the communities you're trying to serve. So the last step in that process really needs to be making sure that you articulate and document measurable outcomes. Thank you so much both for this kind of deep dive into, into what this actually looks like. I think that's just um, you know, really valuable to be able to see how you, how you would manage this kind of an endeavor um, and, and coordinate it. Um, I'll hand it back over to Stephanie to ask our, our final questions, if that's okay. Yeah, it's been so interesting to sit here and listen to you all just, uh, I think, reflect um, and dive deeply into these issues. I'm still laughing. Obviously, I was on mute, but I'm still laughing at David's uh, BBD, Bell Biv DeVoe reference and saying in referring to us as old heads, because I guess I'm in that category now. And, you know, speaking of old heads. I am as well, apparently, Stephanie. <laughs> right. OK. Uh, I remember, you know, when I started uh, working hmm, a couple decades ago, um, I entered the workforce at a time where we didn't talk about these things at work. When you come to work, you talk about what's happening at work. So if there are issues in society, those need not enter into the workplace. Now, obviously, you know, as an academic, um, so much of my research is based on, you know, things that are important for us to know broadly. Um, but my particular interest in the boundaries between work and, and non-work and how we navigate those is actually informed by my early experiences not being allowed to talk about what was considered non-work things at work. And I make this point because clearly there, this issue of COVID, this issue of, you know, as we think about the broader Black Lives Matter movement, as we think about the rise in anti-Asian um, hate, uh, you know, these are things that you can't leave at the door. These are things, especially now that we're all sitting in our homes, right? There, there, there is no boundary between work and non-work. And so as we kind of return to our conversation about the work workers who are actually people in the community, right? It's all the same thing. I'm curious to see um, how each of you in your workplaces are, are tackling some of these issues. So, so David, I want to start with you. Um, clearly, issues of racial equity and justice transcend issues of healthcare, housing, um, you name it, these are these are issues that that I think are of our time. 
Um, but I'm interested because a lot of your job focuses on workforce diversity strategy, which is where I spend a lot of my time um, contemplating. I'm wondering about the extent to which CVS Health has tried to create this alignment or overlap or allowed the boundaries to blur between these movements, these multiple pandemics we've been sitting in and, and our colleagues' experiences and the engagement that um, we want our workers to have and feel. Um, so what has CVS Health been doing um, in order to, I think, manage, um, capitalize on, engage in this, these cross-work and non-work conversations? Well, Stephanie, I think you hit the nail on the head, and uh, Dr. Polite, you may have said this earlier as well, that when you think about what a company is, you know, a company is made up of people, who are those people? Those are people from the community, right? So, you know, companies don't exist in a vacuum. You know, the folks who come to work for you every day, there are things out there in the community that they have to experience. I remember early on in my career, having a gentleman, a young man come to me uh, who lived just outside of Cincinnati. And he said, David, I really appreciate all the work that you're doing to get us excited about diversity here at the company. Let me show you something that was dropped in my driveway last night. And he handed me a pamphlet from the KKK. And uh, it said all the kind of vitriolic crap you would think that it would say. And uh, it, it has stuff in there about where your doctors, your nurses, your policemen, your firemen, you won't know who we are until we want you to know who we are, right? And he said, it's kind of hard for me to disconnect and leave that at the door when uh, my neighborhood pretty much was blanketed with these things last night, then I have to come to work and, and just you know forget about that and just talk about all the positives of diversity with the challenge, but not the challenges I'm dealing with when I have to go home every night. And that really struck me. And, and, and again, this was uh, you know close to 20 years ago. It really struck me that we have to think more holistically about who our employees are, who our colleagues are, because they have a life outside of you know, our organizations when they clock out every day. And that's a part of who they bring, what they bring to work every day as well. So um, we have a four-part framework to our diversity management strategy at CBS. One is we need to have a workforce that's reflective of those communities that we serve. And that's an ongoing aspiration. We're not there yet. That's constant work. Uh, the second one is that we have, a, have to have a company culture of inclusion and belonging. So how do we bring that part of who you are as a person into the workplace so that it's a place you want to stay and fully contribute? The third is around talent systems. So how does everybody have equitable access to growth and development. And the fourth uh, bucket or fourth aspect of that is what we call marketplace diversity. How do we show up as good stewards in the communities in which we operate? Uh, how do we address um, our customers and our clients and all of the constituents? We call that our four C's. So we, we try to take a holistic view of this. And Stephanie, I'll, I'll leave you with uh, an example of how we're dealing with it right now. As we're dealing with um, you know, the ongoing police shootings, as we're dealing with the outrageous spike in anti-Asian hate crimes, you know, what we're telling our colleagues is as a company, yes, we can write checks to organizations who are working to solve these problems. We don't want to do just do that. Uh, we know they need money, so we will do that, but we also want to be part of the solution. So we're encouraging our, our uh, colleagues uh, to undertake virtual volunteering activities. We, we have a pretty robust volunteering uh, program and process, but with COVID-19 uh, COVID right now, we had to move it to a virtual platform and we've done that. So we have something, uh, something called a challenge grant 
if our colleagues volunteer so many hours at a not-for-profit or community-based organization, the company will kick in some funding based on the amount of time that they volunteer. The reason we do that is that we want these not-for-profits and community-based organizations to get the best of both worlds. We want them to get the best of our colleagues, uh, uh, you know, their skill set, their competencies, uh, what they can help that organization actually do. But we know that they have to keep the lights on. So we back that up with funding on the back end. So it's a way for us to, to really think about an integrated approach and, and helping our colleagues tie into their life outside of the company. And it's been very well received. Absolutely. It's a great example, David. Thank you for sharing that. And it's definitely something I think that's scalable and replicable across um, many types of workplaces. Dr. Polite, you've already given us an example uh, of initiatives that you all have been developing in, in the hospital system around engaging workers in is these issues of our time. I'm, I'm curious to see um, how you're thinking about you as a certainly somebody who works in the system, but has, um, you know, taken, taken the lead in, in some, some of these initiatives. Um, how are you thinking about these as contributing to the workplace experiences in a positive way of the people who work in, in the system in which you work? So do you have any understanding of how their sense of inclusion or belonging or their engagement might be positively impacted by uh, being on the front lines. We talk so much about frontline workers being tired and being subject to risk. I'm wondering if there, we're also seeing positive effects. Uh, you, you shared a story yourself of how great it felt to be out there in the community. So just curious to get your thoughts on this before we wrap up. Yeah, so some of the feedback that we had gotten um, after we first initiated Caveat came from the people who were at the vaccination center. Um, one of the ways that we, again, addressed removing a physical barrier was that if any member of the staff came to get vaccinated, even if they didn't have an appointment, they were to be just vaccinated, right? So understanding that these were people who have, you know, 45 minutes to an hour long lunch break by the time they get all the way to the vaccination center in the hospital, there should be no, oh, sorry, you have to come back at two o'clock because that's not how their schedules work. So we literally took away another barrier. But one of the comments that was coming to me from the vaccination workers was that we were continually hearing, they came to my place of business. Literally, they came to me and they answered my questions. By that, by that action, they showed me that they cared about me. And one of the things that we see is that just because you work in a hospital doesn't mean that you actually feel like you are part of that hospital. Right. And some of the things that we had heard from people was because they worked in the hospital, they felt like they had seen racism firsthand. Right. They'd seen people wait in longer lines. They'd seen people wait and not have their pain addressed. So many of the things that the staff workers were, were talking to us about in terms of their trust wasn't, like I said, not unfounded. It was actually based on their own personal experiences in the hospital center. So when we think about, you know, addressing that. We really do have to remember these aren't anecdotes. These are people who are talking about their own personal history, years, right, of working in a hospital center, not just Penn, but working at any hospital center where they felt like they'd seen racism up close and firsthand. Absolutely. So, you know, I could keep talking to you all for another hour, but I am feeling so inspired by the work that you are doing, Dr. Polite, um, and certainly David, the work you're doing as well. Uh, Dr. Polite, I'm, I'm, I'm sensing that you might have a couple more things that you want to say before. Well, I, there's one thing that's been on my mind that I'm hopeful that because we have this smart group of Wharton folks who are going to listen to this podcast, that they might think about. 
One of the things that we have not been able to address is what happens at the end of the day to vaccines when people don't show up. So when you defrost the Pfizer vaccine, when you defrost the Moderna, you get a certain number of vaccines from each vial, right? And if those appointments aren't made, then at the end of the day, each place, the vaccination clinic, the CVS, the whatever, has to figure out what to do at the end of the day. And the idea that I've had that has not yet come into fruition, but there's some smart people who are gonna be listening to this, is some sort of app that connects where you physically are if you want to be vaccinated in close proximity to a vaccination center that has vaccines at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. where you've signed up to say, yes, you can sort of like identify me, I'm here. And then you get an alert on your phone that says the CVS down the street has vaccines available. If you can be there in five minutes, click yes. And you go and get vaccinated, even if you're not one of the, the priority groups, but to make sure that we don't waste vaccines. Because right now, one of the things we didn't talk about is actually this idea of excess, mm -hmm. right? Which is we have people, we have vaccines, and sometimes they're not being connected. Right. So I just because I know that I have some smart people who are on the other side. I just wanted to say like that's a, that's an area that we haven't tackled yet that I really do think should be tackled. That is a brilliant idea, and we have so many um, you know talented, smart students who are interested in entrepreneurship. Yes. And so I am hoping they do listen to this and somebody decides to take all of their knowledge and insights and technological capabilities and run with that. Because I too have been worried about the wasting of wonderful vaccines at the end of the day in relation, I get the categories 1A, B, and C exactly. as a priority, but then to throw out precious gold at the end of the day to me just feels ridiculous. So thank it you feels, for that idea. It feels gut-wrenching when you're actually there. And so- you know, when I've been at the clinic, if we have an end of the day, I mean, I go through my, I have a, a, a list now of people who I text yes. that says, there's an opportunity. Do you want in? Because I refuse to be part of anything where there's a, if there's a waste, I don't want, I don't want that to happen. So I'm bringing some, I know I grew up in Philly. I know enough people that I can call people in, <laughs> but you know, every clinic doesn't call me. <laughs> so. yeah. That is awesome. All right. Well, now you're going to get all these calls from people or in emails from people asking for you to, for, to be on your list. But in any case, thank you all so much for being here. Aline, David, Dr. Polite. This has just been simply inspiring, informative, just amazing conversation. I have learned a lot. You all also make me feel hopeful, right? It's always, it's very hard to have these conversations and it's very hard to have these conversations, particularly in a space now where we know about the gaps and the inequity, but your energy and I think your expertise and your knowledge um, not only is, is inspiring me to sort of keep trying to find savvy ways to educate people and my family, but to also continue to allow this information to be available to the public so they too can help us all, you know, reach some satisfactory, amazing um, conclusions uh, around issues of access and equity. So that would be all for now. Thank you to our listeners for joining us uh, for this episode of the Knowledge at Wharton Leading Diversity at Work podcast series. I look forward to bringing you more insights from experts across all sectors of the workforce. Um, until next time, goodbye for now. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.